Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.19, The Colonial Press. Welcome back. Before we dive into this week's episode, I want to make a quick note on the show for today. For the last couple of weeks, I've been dealing with some relatively minor issues with my microphone. Most of the problems have been things I've been able to fix during the editing process. However, by the end of the last episode, it had become very clear to me that my mic was not long for this world. This microphone has been with me virtually since the very beginning of the podcast, appearing somewhere around the seventh episode of the show. So it has been here for a while, and it has listened to a whole lot of American history with me. In the wake of its failure, I went ahead and replaced it, which, of course, meant that none of my existing mounts worked anymore, and, well, suffice it to say, it has been a bit of a headache. The good news out of all of this is that I did take the opportunity to make some upgrades, so once it is all up and running properly, it should be pretty nice for all of us. However, for this week, please bear with me, as I'm still trying to get everything sounding good and dialed in while still waiting for a couple more parts to arrive. So, with my new mic in tow, let's go ahead and get back to our story. Over the course of the last several episodes, we have spent our time looking at the changes going on in the North American colonies during that period between the end of Queen Anne's War and the outbreak of the French and Indian War. We have already looked at questions of slavery and religion, and this week we are going to turn our attention towards the developing culture. During that period of peace and rapid expansion that followed the end of Queen Anne's War, a distinct culture began to emerge in the colonies, something that was different from what existed back across the ocean in Great Britain. Along with the economic and population growth, the colonies had formed their own specific ways of life. The arts, sciences, and press all became something unique to the North American colonies. Beyond changing daily life, on the eve of the break with Great Britain, these changes to culture and daily life would indeed help sever those ties that had bound the two people together. This week, we are going to turn our attention to the growing colonial press. The press is going to become a core part of the political experience in the colonies, and, importantly, it is going to prove to be a place where the ideals of the revolution would be allowed to grow and spread. Beginning this week, when we talk about the press and moving into our next episode, when we discuss civic involvement and the sciences in the colonies, one man is going to stand largely at the center of everything. I am, of course, talking about one of the preeminent printers in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin. I believe it goes without me needing to say it that Benjamin Franklin is a giant of the founding age. He is nearly universally considered one of the inner circle founders. Following today's episode, Franklin is going to remain a major part of our story going forward. Therefore, before I can move forward with the actual topic of the day, we first have to take a few minutes officially introducing Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was born on Sunday, June 17, 1706 in Boston. The son of Josiah and Abiah Franklin, young Benjamin was born into a busy household. His parents had six children together. And on top of that, Josiah Franklin brought along with him five additional children from his previous marriage. The youngest child of this group prior to Benjamin had died the year before in an accident, meaning that Benjamin was the youngest by seven years of the ten children then living in the household. Young Benjamin Franklin would not forever remain the youngest in the family, as his mother would give birth to his sisters Lydia in 1708 and Jane in 1712 respectively. 
Franklin's father, Josiah, was a tallow chandler by trade, a process that involved him taking animal fat and converting it to candles and soap. It was difficult, undesirable work that was avoided as much as possible. For Josiah Franklin, however, this presented him with an opportunity. He saw an opening, and he took it. And while Josiah Franklin would never become a rich man, he was able to provide an adequate home for his large family. The plan for Benjamin was for him to eventually join the ministry. For Josiah, this would have been a logical choice. He had a lot of children, and certainly did not have enough wealth that the children could all expect a large inheritance. Placing Benjamin into the ministry was the best path towards giving him a future. The plan had been to send Benjamin Franklin to Harvard. However, before that could occur, there had to be a stop at the local Boston Latin School. Among Franklin's classmates was Samuel Mather, the son of Cotton Mather. Despite Franklin excelling, Harvard was not meant to be. Per Franklin's autobiography, the decision was purely financially motivated. However, the biographer Walter Isaacson questions this, pointing out that Josiah Franklin was doing well by this point, and that furthermore, with his grades, Franklin would have likely been able to secure an adequate amount of financial aid. Isaacson argues that the answer more likely lies with the fact that Josiah may have realized that Franklin was not cut out for the ministry. Franklin was instead enrolled in another school in the city, where he would excel at writing and struggle with math. By the age of 10, Franklin was assisting his father in the tallow business. Franklin would later write that it was a job that he himself disliked, personally wanting to be a sailor, something that his father was quick to quash. There was an attempt to get Franklin into the cutler industry. However, that too proved short-lived. Finally, the decision was made that Benjamin Franklin would become an apprentice to his 21-year-old brother, James. James, a printer, would take the 12-year-old Franklin under his care and teach him how the printing business worked. Apprenticeships during the 18th century differed from how they work today. Rather than being something akin to an internship, the then 12-year-old Franklin was required to sign papers of indenture and was, in theory at least, legally bound to James for the next nine years, which was two years longer than normal. For Franklin, the press is going to be something that completely would define him, both publicly and in his own mind. We can gather clues from Franklin's own epitaph about his feelings towards being a printer. In what was meant to be an unpublished epitaph, Franklin wrote, The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out, and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more, in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. There is much we can learn about Benjamin Franklin from this statement. However, his role as a printer is the one that must jump out for the purposes of this episode. Franklin always, at least to some degree, would view himself as a printer. The press in the North American British colonies really came into its own during the early decades of the 18th century. The colonies were a natural fit for a vibrant and often quarrelsome press. In Europe, politics were often something that was discussed amongst the aristocracy. This is not really the case in the colonies. The discussion of politics at taverns throughout the colonies was really just par for the course. This is in part because the North American British colonies enjoyed a uniquely high literacy rate, higher indeed than the literacy rate back in Great Britain itself. We know that by 1750, over 70% of New England men could read. 
with approximately 40% of the women being literate as well. This high literacy rate is largely a direct effect of the Puritan history of New England. Puritans had placed a heavy emphasis on reading the Bible. This would, in turn, lead to the formal establishments of grammar schools going as far back as the 1630s and 40s. With printing presses coming into the colonies at an increasingly high rate during the early 18th century, the colonial United States quickly formed its own independent press. With newspapers being put out to such a highly literate society, they had the effect of increasing political discourse. People read the papers. They discussed the topics in taverns and amongst themselves. As still largely remains the case today, the widespread availability of papers discussing topics such as economics and politics led to even more discourse about those subjects. This drew even more people into those discussions and hence increased the demand for papers. Therefore, in the decades before the American Revolution, the colonies had become a highly literate, highly politically conscious society. Likewise, keep in mind that there was no sense of national unity in the colonies just yet. The first time that we get any sense of something that even resembles a national front will not come until the Albany Conference in 1754. And even then, it is nominal at best. We are going to discuss the Albany Congress in detail before the end of this season. However, for now, just know that it was the first time where you really see the North American British colonies come together and function in a way that is mutually beneficial for everybody. Before that, you really just did have a series of colonies that operated independently of each other. Sure, there would be the isolated instances of intercolonial cooperation. However, that certainly was not the norm. Practically, this meant that the press was discussing extremely direct issues for the individuals in the specific colonies. Without an actual sense of national politics, decisions by local assemblies had wide-ranging effects on the population. Therefore, as political debate erupted over colonial policy, it was taking place within the small populations that would be directly affected. This leads to an often vitriolic style of debate. There was, of course, still discussion of British policy, but the day-to-day -day life of the colonists took place at a local level, rather than being something that was, typically, affected by events back in London. This would remain the case at least until the 1760s, when London did go ahead and get increasingly involved with colonial politics, to catastrophic results. James Franklin was the cheapest printer in the town of Boston. This meant that James was able to secure a printing contract for the Boston Gazette. The Gazette was an upstart paper, just the second one in the colony. When competing against the much larger Boston newsletters, the Gazette was always at a distinct disadvantage. Part of the problem is that the playing field was really never fair. The Boston newsletters was run by the printer John Campbell. As it just so happened, Campbell also happened to be the town's postmaster. This presented him with a clear advantage. He could both print and run his own distribution. Unlike the Gazette, the newsletters need not worry about pesky hurdles, such as paying for postage. When, two years after securing the contract with the Gazette, James Franklin lost his contract, the young printer faced a dilemma of what he should do next. Franklin chose an unexpected option. He started his own paper, the New England Current. For the younger Franklin, this was an important moment in his life. Benjamin Franklin, while working for his brother, would be exposed to a paper which, at least in the eyes of the colonial authorities, 
bordered on radical. If you are looking for a moment that Benjamin Franklin was first introduced to questions of politics, it was right here. James Franklin's paper would carve out a particular reputation for being fiercely independent. It was while working for his brother that Benjamin Franklin would make his first foray into publishing, printing letters under the pretense of being an elderly widow named Silence Duguid. These letters, while not overtly political, did a handful of important things. First, for Benjamin Franklin, it introduced him to the power of publishing. Without revealing who he was, he could influence others. Silas Duguid remains the most famous example of Franklin writing under a pseudonym. However, it is hardly going to be the last time he did it. In the future, Franklin would not only write more political tracts under pseudonyms, he would often write in detraction to his own essays. Franklin would play both sides of the debate in order to move more papers. As a skilled writer, this proved to be something that he excelled at. While introducing Franklin to the power of publishing and getting his first written tracts out there, it is important to make a clear distinction about the scope of control that the colonial authorities held over the press. As newspapers grew in popularity, they would often find themselves clashing with colonial authorities. While there was certainly some flexibility given, colonial administrations were quick to jump in and intercede in publications that stepped outside of the acceptable range. James and Benjamin Franklin would learn about this firsthand in 1722. James Franklin would make a lot of enemies in his time as a printer. Amongst these enemies, we can count the Mathers, who Franklin would go after on the question of inoculations. And if you are curious how the Franklins would size up against the Mathers in 1722, the answer is that the Mathers were on just a whole different playing field than the Franklins. These feuds with influential colonists would eventually come back to haunt James Franklin. The article that would do James Franklin in had been published in The Current, and it was critical of the Massachusetts Assembly and their policy concerning pirates. Beyond that, the Assembly claimed that Franklin was not following correct practices for publishing and was doing so without the consent of the colony secretary. James Franklin had, undoubtedly, been a thorn in the side of colonial officials. He had, after all, been making a lot of enemies for a while now. So when an opportunity to shut down the current popped up, they were sure to take it. James Franklin would end up being jailed for three weeks while the events unfolded. And during this time, it was Benjamin Franklin who took over the paper. Per Benjamin Franklin, when his brother was released from jail, it was under the condition that he could no longer publish the current. With the order of the assembly, and no interest in drawing further ire from that assembly, James had resolved himself to following their orders and no longer personally printing the current. The key word there, however, is personally printing the current. You see, the assembly did not say that the current could not be printed. Rather, they said that James Franklin could not be the one printing the current. The logical choice for his replacement was clearly Benjamin Franklin. Now, this was going to be one of those nudge-nudge, wink-wink agreements where, you know, James was still going to be in control of everything, but it would be under Benjamin Franklin's name instead of his own. Benjamin Franklin, using this to his advantage, convinced his brother to release him from his indenture, as to ensure that they did not offend the colonial authorities in any way. This entire episode with James Franklin had been a fateful moment in the life of both the Franklins. It had, for Benjamin Franklin, 
been his first real taste of the dynamic world of colonial printing. He saw firsthand the power that the assembly had and the dangers of crossing that group. However, he would also see from his brother the power of rejecting the accepted power structure and the power of print to accomplish that end. It allowed Benjamin Franklin an opportunity to try his own hand at printing, though briefly, and see that he could succeed in this industry. Perhaps most importantly, however, for Franklin, it freed him of his indenture. Well, yes, he had told James that he was going to run the current, and even apparently signed a secret set of indentured paperwork with James. Benjamin's time working for his brother was now at a close. Per Benjamin Franklin, their relationship had progressively deteriorated over the years. Franklin guessed, correctly, that his brother would not want to produce the new secret agreement and anger the colonial assembly. With that, Franklin was, at least practically speaking, free. Knowing that he could not easily remain in Boston, the young man traveled to Philadelphia to venture out on his own. It is worth noting down the road, Benjamin Franklin would come to feel bad about what he had done and in his autobiography claims that this was amongst the first errors in his life. Franklin reasoned that despite James' poor treatment of him, James was not bad or ill-tempered, with Benjamin Franklin concluding that he was probably too saucy and provoking. Well, the incident with James Franklin is noteworthy, largely due to the involvement of Benjamin Franklin. This was far from the only case of printers getting prosecuted for printing material that fell outside what the local assemblies were okay with. The most famous example of a prosecution of this nature comes from a trial in New York, known as the Zinger Trial, named after the printer who found himself in hot water. This trial would be an obvious display of the government's power over the individual printers. Beginning in 1686, the New York colony had no free press at all. Per the orders from the Crown, there was to be no private printing presses in the colony. Any printing that needed to be done within the colony had to flow through William Bradford, who held his position in the colony as the official king's printer. This was a position that Bradford would hold from 1693 all the way out until 1742. Now, interestingly enough, in 1723, the year after he had fled from his brother in Boston, a young Benjamin Franklin would meet with Bradford and inquire about a job, a position that Bradford did not extend to Franklin. In 1725, Bradford began printing the first newspaper in New York, the New York Gazette. By this point, however, Bradford was no longer the sole printer in the colony. Bradford's former apprentice, John Peter Zinger, had set up his own print shop in the colony and in 1733 began printing the New York Weekly Journal. During the 1730s, political rivalry ran high in New York. A controversy had erupted between Rip Van Dam and William Crosby. Van Dam had been the provincial New York governor in 1731. He would then be succeeded in the role by William Cosby, who would hold the position from 1732 until 1736. Van Dam and Cosby were not exactly best friends and what would form was an exceptionally contentious relationship that would test the colony's legal system. The catalyst for the coming events would be a dispute over molasses. Van Dam had been a vocal opponent to the Molasses Act. The Molasses Act had been put in place to control the trade of molasses and placed a tax on molasses to protect English trade. 
Prior to the 18th century, the North American colonies produced little in terms of actual materials for the home islands. What they did, however, was to supplement the food supply in the West Indies. This worked well for a good chunk of time because the colonies simply were not producing enough excess for anything more. However, by the 18th century, this was changing, and by the 1720s, the colonies had begun producing large amounts of excess. In order to deal with that excess, the colonies began selling the surplus to the French and the Spanish. Colonial merchants would, when dropping off their shipments, bring back huge amounts of cheap French and Spanish sugar in exchange for the surplus that they would sell. This had the unintended consequence of undercutting the British in their own colonies. The British, to get things back under control, placed a sixpence duty for every gallon of molasses imported into the colony. The act was, generally speaking, a complete failure. What it did, rather than help protect British interests, was create a thriving colonial smuggling industry. The Molasses Act stands as something of a preview of the 1760s, when again the colonies would clash with the British over their policy towards sugar. This first Molasses Act, however, was, unsurprisingly, not a piece of popular legislation. Had the act actually been enforced, it would have dealt a heavy blow to the economy of the Middle and Northern colonies. Among the most vocal critics of the act was the governor of New York, Rip Van Dam. This position by Van Dam infuriated incoming royal governor William Cosby, who himself personally approved of the Molasses Act and disapproved of the attempts of both Van Dam and the Assembly to oppose it. Upon learning that Van Dam had been paid £1,000 for his work, Cosby just wasn't having any of it. Rather than just allowing Van Dam to ride off into the sunset, Cosby wanted to recover the salary that Van Dam had been paid during his time as acting governor. Van Dam, not taking this line down, turned to the press where he was going to air his grievances about now-sitting governor, William Cosby. More specifically, he turned to Zinger, who published the attacks. Cosby, infuriated by the attacks, ordered that James Delancey secure a grand jury to go after Zinger for libel. Though it did take two grand juries, Cosby would get his indictment. Cosby, not stopping there, also hosted a public burning of Zinger's weekly journal. In the sensational trial that ensued, when the attorneys for Zinger challenged the jurisdiction of the court, Chief Justice Delancey just up and disbarred Zinger's attorneys. Despite the dramatics, however, the trial against Zinger continued forward. Replacing the now disbarred attorney for Zinger had been Philadelphia attorney Andrew Hamilton. Hamilton argued to the jury for jury nullification, the idea that the jurors should just disregard the law. He stipulated to Zinger's guilt, but argued that the statements printed were true and the freedom of the press in the colonies was a critical check to the colonial assemblies, who held far more power than similar assemblies back in Great Britain. Hamilton argued that the press was a check against the power of those governors that was necessary because of the distance between the colonies and the home islands. It meant that the colonial assemblies had few effective checks against them and their power. The press was that check. Hamilton argued that the jury should just ignore the law and acquit Zinger. And that is exactly what the jury did. They ignored the law and acquitted Zinger. Two considerable fanfare. As an interesting note on all of this, 
Zinger was not the author of the tracks that got him into trouble. Rather, he was simply the publisher. The author of the tracks remained unknown, though Cosby suspected that the author of the works themselves was likely Van Damme. In order to investigate who wrote the letter, Cosby appointed a young lawyer, Daniel Horseman did, to investigate the source of the writings. Cosby, in 1737, remembered the hard work and loyalty that Horseman did had shown him. Therefore, when an opening on the New York Supreme Court opened up, Cosby appointed Horseman in to fill the vacancy. The Zinger trial has become something of the poster child for a pre-revolution free speech case study. However, it is important to understand that nobody, even the Zinger supporters, really were looking for true freedom of the press in the 1730s. In 1753, it was William Smith, a known Whig writing about the use, abuse, and liberty of the press in the New York Independent Reporter. The Whigs were the party that had, for the last half century, opposed the perceived denial of rights from the Crown. However, even amongst Whigs like Smith, there was an argument that reporting that proves injurious to the country should be criminal. The Zinger trial ultimately is not the moment that free speech came into the colonies. That was still something that was going to come down the road. Rather, the case showed the difficulty in prosecuting a printer for libelous statements. As William Cosby had just learned firsthand, colonial juries bristled at the idea of convicting printers. This was the state of the press in the 1730s. Newspapers were extremely partisan, and while freedom of the press did not explicitly exist, neither were colonial juries eager to prosecute and convict printers. This is the world that the young Benjamin Franklin was coming into when he arrived in Philadelphia in 1723. Franklin's first day in Philadelphia was short, lasting only about a year. Following that, he would end up moving to London for two years where he would work as a printer and learn their printing techniques, though primarily Franklin was enjoying an active social life there. After returning in 1726, Franklin returned working for Samuel Keimer, a prominent though eccentric Philadelphia printer. Returning from Europe, Franklin's plan had been to produce type in the colonies, something that was not yet being done. However, by this point, Franklin and Keimer were in an increasingly tough place personally. The two had, at their best, put up with each other. While Franklin writes that he and Keimer got along well in his autobiography, he also mentions that Keimer was not aware that Franklin was setting him up. So, what does Franklin mean when he says that Keimer was unaware that he was being set up? Keimer had at some point brought in four apprentices, whom Franklin had been working towards training. Benjamin Franklin had realized that he was training his replacement, showing that he knew that the relationship was going to be coming to an end. Franklin, however, could play the game as well, coming to an agreement with one of those men, Hugh Meredith, to open a competing press. The two men would ultimately end up doing just that, opening a competing press. However, Meredith had a serious drinking problem. Ultimately, Meredith would leave the press, and Franklin would end up taking the company over. Franklin, by this point, had wanted to start his own paper to compete against the other paper in Philadelphia, Andrew Bradford's American Weekly Mercury. However, much to the dismay of Franklin, his old boss Keimer had learned of the plan and sought to undercut him by launching his own paper. Understanding that there was not room in Philadelphia at this point for his paper, Franklin was going to have to take another route to achieve his goals. 
Benjamin Franklin was unquestionably a talented writer. Franklin would end up publishing a series of essays, often slamming Keimer in Bradford's paper. The plan was that he could leverage his writing ability to boost up Bradford's paper, thus crippling the new paper by Keimer. Once Keimer was out of the way, Franklin could start his own paper, and then he could focus on taking out Bradford. Publishing under the name Busybody, these essays were an instant success and would find their way to the front of Bradford's paper. Keimer, deducing probably with ease that Busybody's essays were coming from Franklin, would strike back at him. However, the truth remained that Benjamin Franklin was simply a much better writer than Samuel Keimer. Franklin had wanted to drive Keimer out of business and would achieve just that. Keimer had never been great with money and had fallen deeply into debt. Likely running from his debtors, it forced Keimer to leave Philadelphia for Barbados, where Franklin states that he lived in very poor conditions. Defeated, Keimer sold his print shop to Franklin on his way out of the colony in 1729. Franklin would change the name of Keimer's newspaper to the Pennsylvania Gazette. Benjamin Franklin had a print shop and a paper of his own at last. Franklin used his talents as a writer to fill his paper with interesting and entertaining editorials. Writing often under various pseudonyms, Franklin could easily produce a lively product that would have given the outside appearance of having many engaged readers. Franklin's battle with Keimer is a good example of the often contentious nature of the printing industry of that era. Franklin would, predictably, again find himself in a printing battle years later against Andrew Bradford. Far from being unbiased, the colonial newspapers often had clear ideological positions that would put them in direct competition, not only economically but politically with the other papers. Franklin did well in navigating these often treacherous waters, in no small part as a result of his considerable talent as a writer. It set him apart from the other publishers and gave him a distinct advantage. As we just saw, you would have been hard-pressed to find anybody who would have felt that Samuel Keimer could outright Benjamin Franklin. For Franklin, we have begun to see so many of his traits that he would later in life become so revered for emerge. He was a talented writer, but beyond that, he was exceptionally clever. By this point in our story, he was able to get himself out from underneath his brother's print shop, and then just a few years later, he managed to successfully drive Keimer out of business while taking his paper over as Keimer booked to Barbados. Franklin, though damaging some of his relationships, was excellent at manipulating a situation to his advantage, something that will serve him well in the future as he becomes involved in politics. It also marked the beginning of a trend in Franklin's life, where he struggled to keep close personal friends. Yes, he had friends. However, close, lifelong relationships were one area that he would struggle to maintain throughout his entire life. Next time, we are going to spend our time looking at the advance of social societies and the sciences in the colonies. Just as we had Benjamin Franklin for a tour guide this week, we are going to join him again next week as we look at his place in creating several of those civic organizations and his contribution to the sciences. Until then, I hope you all have an excellent two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we explore the emergence of civic organizations and the sciences in the colonies. <laughs> <laughs>